Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Daniel Schaefer, investment banking correspondent, Jennifer Thompson, retail banking correspondent, and Brooke Masters, our chief regulation correspondent. This week, we'll take a look at the British state-owned banks. RBS is planning a partial float of its US business, while Lloyd's has announced a plan to defer its chief executive's bonus until 2018. Secondly, we'll look at the big investment banks and how they seem to be losing market share in a couple of their core business areas. And finally, we'll take a look at the push to limit bank scope for discretion in calculating their risk-weighted assets. First, though, to the issue of RBS and Lloyds. Jennifer, you had a busy week last week looking at both of these banks from various angles. RBS, arguably the most substantial story in the sense that they're under pressure from regulators to come up with some ways to bridge a gap in the capital that they have. We think with their results on Friday announce at least the direction of thinking and that maybe not huge detail, but one of the plans, as you outlined, is for them to float their citizens' business in the US. Yeah, I mean, these are going to be, when all said and done, relatively small steps, but they are going to be significant ones in either way. I mean, we are expecting to see Royal Bank of Scotland announce the partial float of citizens. It's a consumer and business bank in the States, and this would be for up to a quarter of the bank, and it would only begin in a couple of years. So certainly not an immediate, you know, complete flotation, be a chance for them to test the appetite of the market and value the business. And we're also expecting to see them maybe signal a few more nips and tucks with their investment bank and also you know their willingness to consider other forms of equity raising so through cocos as well yeah kind of contingent equity yeah, race which previously they haven't spoken about so i mean these are not going to be sort of huge strategic departures for them but obviously as majority state-owned bank they are under pressure to show that they are moving in the right direction i mean they're certainly not being forced to do anything they, they want to do in the relationship with the government is a very constructive one but nevertheless there is this element that when will the taxpayer get their money back at the price that was paid for RBS shares several years ago. Yes, that is the big question, I suppose. Brooke, how does this fit into the broader background of what we saw come out of the Bank of England's Financial Policy Committee at the end of last year when they outlined it was up to, I think it was a 50 billion capital gap at all of the banks. RBS is generally reckoned by analysts to have the biggest capital gap. We don't know what it is. Maybe RBS doesn't even know what it is, but they're certainly talking to the FSA now about what type of gap might need to be filled and how they might go about that. Basically, what happened is the FPC told the FSA and what will become the Prudential Regulatory Authority in April to go to the banks and figure out if you were much more conservative in predicting losses on your commercial real estate and how much you're going to actually have to pay for all your regulatory and compliance failings and a couple of other things that figure out how much capital you would need to maintain your ratios at levels we find acceptable and give us an answer by March. Yeah. And so, and they predicted the number could get as high as 50, 60 billion pounds. 
at that time, the Treasury made clear they were not willing to put in more money. And so if there is a gap, RBS has to come up with something to fill it. And the FPC is expecting an answer. They meet next month. They want, you know, this is what our gap is. This is what we're going to do about it. And so I think we're starting to see that. Do you think it's fair to say that maybe the FSA is not going to take quite such a hard line as certain members of the FPC might have wanted? Certainly some investors are reading into the Barclays results from a couple of weeks ago that there may be a a fairly, I don't know, an attitude of latitude at the FSA. Partly, I think they were pointing to the Barclays dividend policy, whereby they were paying out of a substantial dividend, even though they had negative earnings. Actually, they reduced their core tier one ratio only very slightly, but the signal was there. And therefore, there clearly isn't such pressure on them and therefore possibly not on the other banks that have yet to report in terms of doing a lot quickly in terms of capital building. I think there's pressure from the government, especially that the banks need to be attractive investment prospects and that long term that that's very important. And it, it is a sign of the waning of Sir Mervyn King, yeah. who was always the one who was obsessed with more and more and more capital. The other members of the FPC, while interested in having more capital and definitely very concerned about any cheating that's going on and understating losses, are less convinced that they have to have more and more capital instantly. And so I think what we are seeing is indeed some easing of the banks. Barclays was always a funny case anyway. It is not state-owned. And by all accounts, whatever it's been doing, by the time they had those meetings, Barclays had already gotten his LIBOR settlement out. It was out and done and dusted. So it had less of a gap in some ways. True. Pragmatism, the order of the day, though, seemingly. Jenny? It is also worth pointing out, um, in addition to Brooke's point, that the RBS plan would raise a relatively modest amount of capital. 15 to 25% of the citizens' business would get you perhaps around $2 billion. And of course, it is an incredibly staggered plan. Clearly, we don't know what RBS's capital needs are yet. We won't know that until next month. But at the same time, it's likely to be more than $2 billion, right? So, you know, again, yeah. this sort of, if they were under that much pressure, then, you know, they would be looking at a far higher percentage of the citizens' business. One thing that does seem interesting that they're not going to outline an immediate float. They're talking about something by the end of 2014, I think, when they they outline this. That, according to what I'm hearing, is the kind of timeframe that the FSA wants to see these capital plans put in place. So it's a kind of two-year horizon rather than something in the next six months, which, again, sounds like pragmatism at work. Jenny, just a quick word on the other state-owned UK bank, Lloyds, which, like RBS, has its annual results announcement at the end of this week. But I'm guessing capital there is less of an issue. I think they're fairly confident about their capital position. But nonetheless, they're in the news. The bonus issue around the chief executive, Antonio Rosario is still a live one. Unlike several other chief executives, he hasn't waived his bonus. And we're expecting to see that confirmed in the coming days. I think interesting, though, that they've preempted any criticism by restructuring the way it would be paid. Yeah, that's right. I mean, obviously, the, the bonus for hours comes around every single year. And this year, the theme has been banks sort of sidestepping as much as they can in advance. What we saw last week was you know, movements to link the payout of Antonio Horta Osorio's bonus to the level at which the government paid its stake. I mean, obviously, this bonus this is for 2012 would already be deferred for a certain number of years. But the remuneration committee is considering two extra steps. First, to defer it for a further two years. So we're talking 20 and secondly, to can only vest if it reaches the government's in price, which is... So this a, is the price at which the government injected its money, Yeah, that's its right, money, right, exactly. I mean, yeah. that, again, is sort of open to debate, but it looks like they're going to set it 
at the higher end, which is about 74 pence. So, you know, I mean, it, he's not foregoing a bonus uh, entirely. And in fact, he'd foregone his bonus for the previous year due to the period of leave he took. But it will obviously push it back a considerable period of time. And it's also a gesture, really, to say that they're aware that at a time when banks are being hit by large impairments for things like PPI, you know, they can't be seen to be too keen to hand out these big payments, particularly when they're the state bailed them out. Well, quite, absolutely. We should move on to our second topic, which is also capital-related. Brooke, you've been looking at the various initiatives around risk-weighted assets, this whole vexed topic of, which is really at the core of how capital ratios are worked out. The capital at the top of the fraction is one thing, but the bottom of it is the risk-weighted asset number, which there's a lot of latitude and long has been in that, but we're seeing regulators crack down. Fundamentally, yes. I mean, what's happened is regulators kind of have, with Basel III, have largely sorted out what they think goes at the top. And also the overall number, the actual ratio. They are now addressing the third part of the equation, which is exactly how to measure your asset. You can measure as total assets. And the problem with that is that penalizes banks that do lots of big number, but low risk lending, like say trade finance is the classic example. But you can also apply standard weights, which is what small banks do for residential real estate mortgages. It's basically 35%. But the problem with that is that doesn't take into account that you know some mortgages are much safer than other mortgages. So there's always been this theory that everyone should be able to use their models. But everyone's always believed that there was cheating going on with the models, that some models completely understated risk, and some actually were quite conservative and maybe are too high and penalize things that shouldn't be penalized. There's a whole view that SME lending is penalized under this theory. As a result of that, the regulators have started to take a closer look at who's doing what. And the Basel Committee came out a couple of weeks ago. Didn't they, they, and they found assessment. up to eight times variation and 16 yeah. times in certain classes. Yeah. Um, what's interesting about that is in that report, they telegraphed that one of the things they've discovered as a major problem is the time period people use when coming up with a model to rate risk. Yeah. In that if you use a short period of time right after a crisis, it would, of course, make your risk go way up because things have just crashed. So everyone uses a really long period right after a crisis. And then the farther the crisis moves away, the shorter the period gets so you can get rid of the crisis. So they are telegraphing that one of the things they're considering is prescribing. You know, for residential mortgages, you will use three years no matter who you are or when your crisis was. Right. Um, We are also hearing that the EBA, which is the European Banking Authority, which is this standard setting, wishes it were stronger regulator, trying very hard to be relevant is looking at this issue as well. And they have a lot of really interesting data. They've got a lot of banks of lots of different sizes. Basel's only looked at the very, very biggest banks. And actually, some of the really nasty splits are probably happening in the middle. Daniel, you were looking at some study of discrepancy in different banks' treatment of different assets. Yeah, there's one bank that stands out in particular, which is Deutsche Bank, if I look at the European banks, because they partly pushed by the German regulator, who always wanted more internal ratings to be applied. They have actually the highest amount of internal ratings models used right. at the end of 2012 they had something like 94% was based on internal. non-standard yeah non-standard right. so there's a research by Espiritu Santo analysts basically suggesting that if they would have to use standardized model their risk weighted assets would be 49% higher which right. obviously is very significant given that Deutsche Bank is one of the weakest capitalized banks still in Europe despite some improvements so some significant improvements at the end of last year. This plays into the perennial whinging that comes out of US banks, no doubt partially with justification, but Jamie Dimon of JP Morgan is constantly complaining about 
Deutsche in particular, BNP as well, over yeah. the discrepancy between the risk-weighted number and the total assets number at those banks, although there are justifiable reasons in several cases. Brooke? Yeah, I was going to say one of the big discrepancies, of course, is Deutsche Bank is lending to German corporates and German households, yeah. and Jamie Dimon is lending to subprime. Yeah. Indeed, Plus, there's is... a different treatment of derivatives in the US versus Europe. There's a different treatment of mortgages. So there's, I mean, there are valid reasons. But even if you strip those out, I think, as you as you say, the analysts are pointing to it and also yeah. a, a valid point. There. I mean, if, the fear now that everyone is looking at is that if next year the ECB takes over as the banking regulator, they will have a different approach, maybe, you know, push for a more standardized approach than BaFin in Germany did. So that would basically hit Deutsche's approach to use more internal ratings and thus would increase their need for capital even further. That's the fear. That, that makes the, the EBA process very interesting. That's presumably going to be core to what the anything the ECB does to try and pick up the issue and harmonize it. A final topic for the day is, Daniel, you've been looking at a couple of of areas where the big name investment banks have been losing market share, seemingly. Particularly, this is on advisory work, this is kind of yes. M&A advisory. It's basically all the areas that investment banks would call IBD, investment banking division, which is advisory for capital raisings, debt raisings, and mergers and acquisitions. And looking at it from a longer term perspective, one can clearly see that a decade ago, the nine largest investment banks globally had two thirds of the market share in IBD. And now in the past two to three years, they've been hovering at about 45 to 46 percent. And there are some clear winners in the past few years. And those are mainly the boutique investment banks, i.e. smaller groups of advisory firms that have mostly been founded some pre-crisis, but quite a lot of them also after the crisis by former senior executives at investment yeah, banks. who've left. Yeah. yeah. And the other element of it is that mid-tier banks have actually, surprisingly, because some people have been suggesting that the opposite would happen, have been gaining market share as well. No, that's interesting. So mid-tier banks, by which you mean what kind of... Mid-tier banks could be very big global banks, like it could include banks like Santander, HSBC, yeah. and Wells Fargo in the US. But not um, the traditional they, big name Yeah, but not banks. the bulge yeah. bracket investment banks. So they are big. Some of them are very big commercial lenders right. that have been pushing into the, the investment banking space. Right. And the reason... The main reason really for this is that if I look at the debt capital market side in particular, i.e. the raising of bonds, that um, there seems to be a trend that some of the corporates, particularly in Europe but also elsewhere, are rewarding their long-standing relationship banks with which they had lending relationships over long term. They are still rewarding them despite shifting from outright loans to bonds. So they're still saying we still want to issue the bond with you because you've been giving us credit for the past 20 years and you stuck with us during the financial crisis. So sometimes it might even be only passive mandates. I'm guessing it might work the other way as well, that the clients are saying to the banks, well, we'll only give you this mandate if you continue to lend this money to us. Oh, and the other way around, the, the banks are saying, well, unless you give us this mandate, then we're going to pull your credit lines. Yeah, I mean, it's, indeed. It's, it's a slightly it's, more aggressive uh, yeah. dynamic at work potentially as well. <laughs> I think it's, yeah, it works that way around as well. So yeah. they feel they must 
Yeah. So they've got the obligation to sort of to give them the mandate because otherwise they might pull the line. The other element, the other big reason for the for some of the other banks gaining market share in this space is that it is actually the most capital light of all investment banking businesses under the new Basel III capital rule. So right. basically, while there are a lot of banks retrenching from investment banking areas, particularly areas like fixed income yeah, trading, the trading where, side. Where, yeah. yeah, on the trading side, where you need to hold a lot of capital, much, much more capital against the trading businesses than you had to do in the past. These areas, like advisory work, they've got very kind not, not a lot of capital. Yeah. That you need to but what you're saying of them, the big bulge bracket investment banks losing market share, I mean, that's doubly bad news for them because if their trading business is becoming less profitable because of the capital intensiveness of those businesses and they're losing share of the capital light areas, then that's not great news. No, it isn't. But I mean, the one thing I have to say is it has never been the biggest part of their revenue driver. So all the advisory work, while being very visible to the outside and in the media, there's a lot of talk about M&A deals and their role in advising. It's actually to the bottom line, it's something between 10 and 20% across all the business lines. So it's not the most important, even despite its reputation, it's not the most important business line but on the other hand it does create a lot of additional revenues so through an advisory mandate you might get a trade finance or you know another or a swap uh, agreement or you know other contracts in other business areas so in that sense it is worrying for them if they lose market share in that area well we'll monitor that trend over the coming months thank you daniel that's it for this week all that's left for me to do is to thank brooke jennifer and daniel for their contributions and to thank you for listening remember you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com banking banking weekly was produced by connor sullivan until next week goodbye for more downloads go to ft.com forward slash podcasts support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com.